You ever seen a movie about lawyers and the guy says sidebar? And you're like, what the hell's a sidebar? Can he do that? Bar. You ever uh, wonder what happens to your favorite cop character after all the bullets fly and all the, the kisses die down and everyone's calm again? Where does he go after that? What happens to him? You ever wondered if that stuff that the guy stole in the Thomas Crown Affair was insured and that the fact that he stole it didn't really matter because the insurance company was going to pay for it anyway? And after that big hero explosion in the superhero movie, who, who gets sued? Who pays for all this stuff? Well, here on Perp Fiction, we talk about all that stuff. I'm Damon. This is Chris. We're both professionals. This is personal. And, uh, Chris, what qualifies you to talk about this stuff in the first place? You see this wallet I'm holding right now? The one that says, bad motherfucker on it? Yes, I do. Well, what do you see inside when I open it? I see money. I see a credit card. Oh, I see a badge. A badge? It says... NYPD. Retired now. Detective NYPD, 20 years. What about yourself? Well, um, I went to law school. Uh, I went to Harvard Law School. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I graduated over 20 years ago. I've been a lawyer for a little while. So you I know I, who the smart one is. <laughs> We're both geeks, though. Big film geeks. Big time, 80s, 90s, up until today. And uh, we got together one day. We met on the set of a television show called New Amsterdam. Yes, we did. Can I say what we were doing? Absolutely. I think it's essential to say what we're doing because it's kind of ridiculous. I'm uh, the star. And it's a good origin story. I'm I'm the star of the show and he was my love. We were both extras. Yeah, we were extras. We both both got the gig through central casting. Something that both of us just always wanted to do. I I used to live in Los Angeles and I never did it there. And uh, now I live on the East Coast, uh, adjacent to New York City, and I they have that here. I didn't have enough drinking money, uh, <laughs> and so I, you know, one hundred twenty-five bucks, one hundred fifty bucks extra. You know, they, you know, you can go out. Yes, you can. And uh, so we're on the set for New Amsterdam, and I uh, I was playing a hospital police officer, an NYPD hospital cop, and up walks this janitor guy, <laughs> who was Chris, <laughs> who actually was a cop. And uh, says, you know, you look like a cop. And I'm like, that that's, thank, thank you, I, I think. And uh, he, he, lo- he totally looks, he looks more like a cop than I do. I, I do kind of look like a cop. It's, uh, it's following me kind of. He's like taller, him. he's handsomer, we're equally bald. And I actually look more Bruce Willisy, I think. Willisine. Willisine, which we'll, we'll get into that. Um, but uh, yeah, so we met on the set of New Amsterdam. And Chris was talking to me about some of his movie ideas, and one of them, which I won't go into detail about because we still hope that he'll make it into a movie, uh, gave me the idea to do something in the form of a podcast. And then I talked to him about it, and I said, you know what? Let's geek out about movies on a podcast, and we'll critique it and analyze it about you know law stuff. We'll look at what lawyers do. We'll look at things that lawyers should have done or things that lawyers would have a hand in. And Chris can look at things that uh, the cops do or that cops should do or how the cops do it. When the bullets fly and the interrogations begin, I'll do the law, he'll do the order, or vice versa. We'll investigate, we'll prosecute, we'll defend, and we'll sue. And with that, welcome to episode one of Perp Fiction. Perp Fiction, baby. I promise I'll never even think about going up in a tall building again. All right, so Die Hard... Every cop's favorite movie. Especially NYPD cops, right? You know, I would think. And, uh, you know, certainly one of my influences, a person wanting to uh, go into law enforcement, which we probably will get into a little bit more later. So you went into law enforcement because you hoped and dreamed that one day you would accidentally get trapped in a building that was being taken over by German terrorists bent on stealing a bunch of money and perhaps get blown up off the roof or die in an elevator shaft or get shot in an air vent? That's what made you want to be a cop? Except for the dying part. <laughs> God, please don't let me die. 
No, almost dying. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, okay. very much so. Uh, you know, you, you could run down your career as a series of disappointments as they relate to Die Hard. Sure, okay. Uh, you know, and, and the levels where you even got close, and I don't mean very close, you know, th- those those are your peaks. Um, 1988, we said? 88. 88. John exactly. Tiernan, Jan yes. de Bont is the uh, director of photography. Right. Uh, a formative film in action filmmaking. I believe uh, based on a novel. Nothing Lasts Forever. Nothing. The name of the book. No wonder nobody read it. I know. It's a <laughs> stupid name. It sounds like a James Bond film that never got to be a James Bond film. When I look at this film, the, the big question that I come up with, uh, you know, best, best cop movie ever, top ten. I'd, I'd, I'd say definitely that. top ten, top five. It might be. I mean, it's definitely top five action movies. I go top five. I mean, just straight top up, forget cop action. movie action, which is I think broad. I think cop subset of action. So unless you talk about those like like the Departed, yeah, which procedural. Is like yeah. And, and there, there are people who have argued that it's not truly a cop movie because although it stars a cop, he's a vehicle of action, not a a vehicle of police work per se. Well, if you, you ask consider- Bruce Willis, he probably would tell you it's not a cop movie. Uh, he, at his roast, when asked this, or he, I don't even know if he was asked, but he said, I just want to settle something once and for all. Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. It's an Emmer effing Bruce Willis movie. So I think that's what he thinks it is. He, what does he know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing, right? No. I know. Christmas movie for sure. That was the other topic of debate. Mm-hmm. I'm settling this now. It is a Christmas it's movie. It's absolutely a Christmas movie. Uh, if Bruce wants to come talk to me, we'll talk. We'll have him on the show, or you know, he can punch me in the jaw. Whatever. <laughs> I broke his fucking neck! <laughs> Bruce and Willis with the best, arguably the best civil service New York accent I've ever heard in the film. And not just that, basically, instead of having, like, Predator, you know, with a with an Arnold Schwarzenegger character, this just super behemoth, you know, Ultraman that could do anything and destroy anything and could find the Predator even though he has that telltale shimmer. You, know, you never quite know where he is. But, uh, you know, he took, he took a regular everyman, John McClane, and and turned him into a hero. And not only that, it, it's not like we don't even get the sense that he's some sort of super cop. I mean, he was a, just an, he wasn't even a detective at that point, and we don't know how long he'd been on the fourth. Wait, how long did he say he'd been I doing think it? Eleven years. Eleven or twelve years. When he said to the guy on the plane, eleven years. Trust me, trust um, me. I've been doing this for eleven years. Thank you. Yeah, and and so it it uh, it made him relatable. Come out to the coast. We'll get together, have a few laughs. First things I wanted to bring up about this cop character, different from others, from a law enforcement perspective, the thing that make it, makes it unique for me is the fact that he engages in escalation of uh, deadly encounters and the use of deadly physical force that you don't see in normal cop films or Dirty Harry's or any action films where you get, you know, the guy comes in like a mean machine and he's bad throughout. Mm-hmm. Bruce Willis in this film, John McClane, the character, spends most of the first act of the film, when he's not arguing with his wife about petty things like her last name, mm-hmm. uh, trying to either escape and get information out, get back up to the scene, and get the hell out of harm's way. He's he's a cop first. And in the first encounter that he has, instead of just walking and blowing somebody away with a pithy line, and there are pithy lines in the film, we know. Uh, this, this, this film could be the Rosetta Stone for pity cop lines. Welcome to the party, pal! Attention, whoever you are, this channel is reserved for emergency calls only. No fucking shit, lady! Do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. So he, <laughs> he rolls up on the first terrorist he actually encounters and puts a gun to the back of his head. Freeze, mm-hmm. dickhead, like he's gonna, you know, arrest the guy. 
And the guy calls him out, right? What does he say? He says, you're not going to shoot me. Yeah. You're a policeman. There are rules for policemen. Yeah. That's what my captain keeps telling me. They get into a hand-to-hand -hand fight. The guy's And he actually shoot. doesn't shoot him. He doesn't shoot the guy. Uh, you know, they like, look. a grappling I, match. They go down the stairs. He breaks the guy's neck in a headlock. We presume not fully intentionally, by accident. I, I think so. And I understand. I understand that he probably wanted to question the guy or maybe ask himself. I, I'm not sure why he thought he needed to question the guy. I don't know why he needed the guy alive. He was a cop, and that's his job. I know. And, and there are the, rules for policemen. But... But shoot the guy! No, <laughs> shoot the guy! This is the brilliance of it, is that they bring this character from yeah. that moment of being a cop to getting, he gets offered some very sage advice. Yes. Next time you have a chance to kill someone, don't hesitate. Bam. Thanks for the advice. Blast bam, the guy bam, through the table. Bam, Arguably, bam. I don't think a 9mm is going through that table. I agree. I, I don't think that's happening. But Not only did it, go, did it go through the table, it went up pretty damn accurately. I mean, he couldn't yeah. see what he was shooting he at. He was shooting it. through how thick was that thing? It was like three inches of wood. You're right. I don't think it goes through that no, table. It doesn't go through. I don't think. But it, badass. Yeah, it, mean, was, it, it was pretty hardcore. I mean, but, I mean there's a couple of issues we're going to go into with yeah. that. And one of them is that he probably wouldn't have a 9mm anyway. I believe that NYPD didn't go over to 9mm issue firearms until the early 90s. Hmm. Uh, you think probably he probably would have had a 22 or something? No. <laughs> I mean, six, six shot uh, 38 caliber yeah but like, um point being you know that that encounter he shoots a couple guys mm -hmm. it's actual gunfire going down he is still trying to get a radio trying to get to the roof throwing bodies out the window so the mm -hmm. cops will start calling for backup right he's doing everything in his power not to be the guy in the middle of the action and it keeps us every time he tries to get out they pull him back in well let, let me ask you about something in. you said you mentioned escalation of force uh I don't want to sound like a Luddite or anything. Is that is that a, a police term? Yeah, escalation of forces is they they train in at least in New York Police County. I'm sure pretty much everywhere mm -hmm. in the country. Yeah, how does it come go, up in it, work, like it, in your work? Well, it's it's a paradigm that they teach you where you're going to fall on the scale based on your surroundings. Okay, are you using your your verbal skills to try to manipulate the situation? Okay, are you going to physical restraint? Or if the guy's fighting you back, do you go to stick or mace or taser? There have been some new. I'm, I'm retired long enough that I never even held a taser before. Um, hmm. And then you get into your deadly physical force. It's a situation meant the use of a firearm. See, for me, escalation of force is just getting to the point where I got to treat somebody as a hostile witness. <laughs> so. Hey, man, there's, there's a lot of tension in that courtroom, man. I've been yeah, there, there is. I've seen a lot of cops that could stand up under fire, crack on the witness stand, believe me. Moving on, we get we go up the chain to the point where he's is you know he knows his wife is hostage. He, he knows that no one's coming to help him. He's throwing explosives down an air shaft. To, and that was, again, a last resort. Down an elevator shaft because mm -hmm. SWAT guys were under fire and no one was coming to help him. Right. Uses the explosives, again, defensively. But something turns after the scene where he gets Hans and then his bad guys, the buddies show up from the elevator. He's getting shot. His foot's now deeply cut. And he realizes, no more cop stuff. I'm going to have to start opening doors and blowing people away like what happened to... Uh, that guy who played Endo and Lethal Weapon, he opens the door, the Asian guy, bam, 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 yeah. bam, bam, bam. Oh, yeah. just, just, he's just dropping people at that yeah. point. And um, you just, you don't see that in film. You don't see, uh, you know, they always talk about a character arc when you deal with screenwriting. Mm -hmm. I'm a screenwriter also. Yeah. But this is the first time I had seen the kind of an arc of an of escalation of force in one character in one film rendered perfectly. I know what a TV dinner feels like. Um... I wouldn't say that all of the action is sublimely realistic. We mentioned the, the, the you know, yeah. the, where nine millimeters go. and Or when he's running on the roof, and I don't remember, Carl, I think that the blonde, the, the blonde sort of like 
you know, Skeletor looking guy <laughs> is standing up there with a, I don't remember. I don't, was it, it's a Steyr AUG. That was the right. favorite weapon. It's, it's a, it's a, uh, I believe it's an Austrian gun. Uh, it's got a scope built into the handle and a, mm-hmm. a, what they call a bullpup configuration. Mm-hmm. It's like the clip in the back of the stock. Right. And it just it was one of the first guns. It looked like a space gun. Everyone was picking up that gun to be – it was actually used in sci-fi movies hmm. as like a future weapon. Uh, and the other weapon that all the other terrorists have is the world-famous MP5. Right. Heckler and Koch. Heckler and Koch. I've been told that it's not Heckler and Koch. Heckler and Koch. Heckler and Koch. And it- <laughs> You want me to say it? You're trying to lead me to say it? Heckle my cock again. Heckle my cock one more time. (laughs) Look, if you heckle my cock. So anyway, we're moving away from heckling of any cocks, and we're getting to the MP5. I fired the weapon. You're a cock. Deadly. (laughs) Deadly accurate. It's got a little circle at the backside and Uh a little pin at the front. When you put the circle around that pin, the bullet goes there. It hugs your body. It recoils almost not at all because it's, again, a 9mm, and it just puts pinpricks wherever you want them to go. I don't think the three, four guys I don't think he got thing, shot one time. He didn't get shot. No, he got grazed on the shoulder yeah. by his own gun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, he didn't get hit. You never got and there were times by, he should have been hit. Yeah, by a lot of automatic gunfire. Right. But, um, you know, sometimes what do we do? Do we do the letter of the law or do we go with the spirit of the law? Uh, well, a lot of times we go... Spirit. Uh, we're going to spirit on this one. Yeah. The action scenes in this film are full of a realism. But sure. The nuance, even of the stunt work that they did, so on point mm-hmm. with that sense of urgency, desperation of him always being on the defensive when he was outgunned. He was starting to freak out, but yes. he managed to keep it together. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you love that. He, he, it and at some point, he was almost just irritated. Mm-hmm. He was just ir- like, again with this guy. You know, that <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> and they've been, they've been chasing that formula in so many films. And they mm-hmm. think, like I said, it's that horror movie, like, closed environment with the bad guys. And that's not what did it. It right. was that character. It was, right. that, it was that real civil service accented, reluctant hero that just, that you know, that you just bought. Hook, line, and sinker. Um all about what? It's all about the bearer bonds in this yep. film. $650 million in negotiable bearer bonds that you have locked in your vault. Dude, I still don't know what a bearer bond well, is. Well, I, I can tell you. I'll, I'll give you the uh, you know the quick version of it. Just kidding. Bearer bonds are basically like cash, um, but except, uh, I mean, we'll think of them as cash. But bonds, think about bonds, you think about stocks. You've heard mm-hmm. stocks and bonds. It's a, you've mm-hmm. heard that phrase. Stock is equity in a company. Mm-hmm. A bond is debt. Of a company, so when a company takes out a loan, mm. they have debt, and a lot of times that debt gets sold to third parties oh, gotcha. so that they can make money off of it, and the debt pays interest. And so these bonds usually have coupons. They used to actually have physical coupons that you could redeem for interest payments from the person that had the debt. The difference between a bearer bond and a traditional registered bond uh, is that bearer bonds are unregistered. There's no name on them. They are basically, they hold value to the bearer, gotcha. which means that if you have it, then it you can use it like cash. The reason that bad guys like them is because they come in huge denominations sometimes. Like, you could actually have a million-dollar bearer bond, so it's like having a million-dollar bill. So you're saying that when those things were floating down uh, onto the streets, there could have been, like, million-dollar pieces of paper? Thanks, Santa. Okay. Uh, so, so, so what's going on legally in terms well, that's of... A, that's a good question. Um, you know, when I saw Die Hard the first time, I was just amazed that this building that I had driven by a bunch of times before, you know, I used to live in Los Angeles, and it's actually Fox Plaza in Century City. I'd seen the building before, and to see it get blown up was kind of cool. But as I grew as a person and into my career, and I started to handle things like insurance lawsuits and things, I, I started to question... 
or ask myself when I saw the movie again, I'm like, you know what? A, wouldn't the bearer bonds probably have just been covered by some massive insurance policy? I mean, I know that the security that they had is sort of like an insurance policy in and of itself, but that's the sort of thing that you're going to get covered hmm. because it's got an ascertainable value, and I'm sure that you could find a carrier that could give you a policy on it, uh, at least some sort of a theft policy, because generally you can get a policy to cover things in your business. Right. You can get a policy to cover things in your cash register. This would just be just like that. It would just be a much bigger policy. So I'm thinking, if the stuff was covered by insurance, Takagi probably didn't have to die, <laughs> you know? Do you think that they were slinging around insurance policies for that kind of money for theft, though? I mean, sure, it, was it yeah. almost unthinkable, maybe? You have no idea the types of things that insurance companies will insure and at what value. Because the, the deal is, insurance companies make monthly premiums on these things. Right. And if there's low risk, because all that insurance is, is lots of money in a risk pool, right? So everybody that's on the, let's say that, you know, the Chris Damon insurance company car insurance plan, everybody that buys our insurance puts their money, their premiums into a risk pool. Mm -hmm. And that money gets used to pay out, you know, to pay out claims when claims happen. So you try to get people to put into the pool that are at low risk, right? So this particular set of bearer bonds, that it's $6 million, how much was it? $650 million. $650 million in bearer bonds in this awesome vault. You know, it's like this Darth Vader Death Star of a vault, right? It's really low risk. I mean, look what it took to actually crack the thing. Yeah. Look what they had to do. So I'm guessing, yeah, they could get insurance for it. Yeah, somebody would cover it because they'd be getting monthly premiums from Nakatomi all the time, and they wouldn't probably ever have to pay a claim because that vault is so badass. And they weren't counting on our main man, Theo. Bet your ass I wish to proceed. And he's the only surviving terrorist. He's the only guy that makes it. Yes. So, Prosecutor Watson. Oh. ADA Watson. What are we charging this Well, guy first with? of all, I love Argyle. Because and I know that the cops have got to love Argyle too, because oh, yeah. Argyle if basically it, if, stopped this guy from escaping. You know, punches Theo out, right? Stops him from getting away. The question is, what are we going to charge him with, right? And because he didn't actually kill anybody, right now the only thing that you have him for directly, right? Forgetting the conspiracy, because there's definitely conspiracy here, but we're not going to go into the details of that. We've definitely got accessory, but we're not going to go into the details of that. But the things that he did was, you know, he he uh, he. Committed burglary. Entered her man lawfully, right? Right. right. He, well, he broke, and in, in California, it's ent, it's uh, breaking and entering of a dwelling um, at night, which actually this was at night. I don't think that's still a requirement anymore. At night with the intention of committing a felony therein. And he did all this. It was dusk when they first went. <laughs> I object. I want this man free. I'm pretty sure it was full dark. <laughs> so, you know, you got him for burglary. Uh, you got him for uh, probably, I don't know, receipt of stolen property. You got him for... All kinds of, you know, whatever, uh, you know, mayhem, right? I mean, because he, he sat there destroying private property. But what you really want to get him for are the homicides, sure, right? I mean, that's that's the meaty stuff. I mean, when you were a detective, uh, you know, when you were handling a case and you've got some deaths, you don't want to peg the guy with a breaking and entering. You want to get him for the homicide. Well, the reason why I ask is because I'd, I'd been, I've had cases where in a, like a robbery, like a, say a deli robbery, right? Not, not six hundred fifty million dollars in bear bonds, but right. you know the cash register. If the if the proprietor whips out a gun and kills one of the perps, I've seen cases where he was charged. Right. The other perp was charged yep. with the killing of the second of the perp, perp by the proprietor. And I mm -hmm. said, "Whoa, can we get can we get Theo?" You know, it's interesting that you brought that up. Since you're a New York, you're a New York officer. These days in New York, there's a carve out in the well. First of all, it's felony murder is the is the 
category of things we're talking about. Deaths or homicides committed during the commission of a felony, another felony. In this case, the you know the the terror. I mean, these days they'd get charged with terrorism too. I mean, they'd, they'd probably be Patriot Act stuff against these guys right now. But that, that didn't exist in '89. So Patriot just, Act, baby. Uh, I know that got. I mean, they, they would be so screwed under the Patriot Act. But um, so Theo number one. Let me take a step back. In California in 1989, courts were pretty permissive when it came to felony murder types of cases. Right? They liked felony murder. They would go after criminals for felony murders. Uh, they would generally look at the totality of the circumstances. They would look at the things that this particular perp did, that the uh, his conduct, his recklessness towards human life. Now, let's look at all the things he did. First, he br- he walks into the lobby of Nakatomi Plaza with, I think it was Carl, and he creates a distraction, and then Carl plugs a security guard. Then another security guard gets plugged based on the distraction, and after the first guy gets plugged, Theo kicks him kicks him in the chest, the dead body, to the chest will attack. So he sort of also shows gross disrespect of a corpse, if that's even a thing. I mean, I think I heard that at the show Archer once. Gross abuse of a corpse. That's right. That's actually a thing. So there's that. And that was all on camera. If you remember, McLean walks into the lobby, he looks up and sees the security camera. And so that, I don't, they, they actually never referred to that camera again, really. No. But. But that's the first but thing the prosec- but they going to refer to. But the prosecutor is going to go to the camera and he's going to see all that. Then. You've got the guy that, uh, when Gruber plugged Nakatomi, or, or Takagi, in the boardroom, Theo and Carl are betting on that homicide, right? Carl paid Theo after he shot him, so Theo actually benefited from it. And we're not even clear if McLean heard or saw those things, because he was outside the room at the time. But I'm going to just give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he was a witness to all of it and probably heard it because he said, Why didn't you stop him, John? So I think he probably kind of had a sense of when he could stop him. Right. So you get him for that. Then the real question I think that you have is, can you then get him for all the guys that uh, McLean plugged? Yeah, the guys that McLean. You know, in California in 1989, oh, hell yeah. Nice. Hell yeah. I mean, in New York today, no. But no. In LA then, but in, LA, in California back then, oh, yeah. Oh, my God, the quarterback is tall. Oh, so, I don't feel that bad for him. I don't feel that bad for him either. But, you know, let me ask you this. Uh, what happens to John McLean after all of this? Oh, that's... I mean, know, I know we know what happens to him in the Die Hard universe, but, you know, you've got a... a a police officer from New York who acted extra jurisdictionally, right? In a sense, you've got LAPD that never really quite jibed with him the whole time, and they kind of acted like they were trying to make him out to be a scapegoat. They are mad at him for creating a lot of mayhem. They're mad at him for the building blowing up. They're mad at him for destroying a car. Are they going to go bitch at New York about this? And is anything going to come back on him? Or what, what's going to happen with that? What do you think? It could get complicated. First things first, and I don't want to. Eh. Media spin is going to be huge. Yeah. And he's played as the hero. And you know what? His wife didn't do him any favors by punching out the reporter. <laughs> nope, she did not. But we're going to but assume that, reporter that, the, was a douche you know, that the facts will basically come out that, that he was the good guy in all this. He's going to have to stand for grand jury mm-hmm. for the homicides he committed, regardless of whether he's you know, charged Yeah, I mean, there's definitely going to be gonna, an investigation. Gonna, he killed like 10 guys. They're going to they're <laughs> present a case to the grand jury and try to no true villain. The DA will lead the grand jury to give a self-defense justification so that he doesn't get indicted. We don't know who's getting sued if someone's going to try to sue I someone sue New York on behalf of the building for him throwing C4 around in the place yeah, yeah. and you know what ladies and gentlemen that right there is why the movie ends with John McClane walking away in the sunset with the girl kissing in the back of a limo yep because nobody wants to have to face all the crap that the real world would throw at him after all of that happened